Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hey. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I'm all right. It's been an okay two weeks. I've just been trying to use my free time well, trying to read, started a book club with my friends, which is which is nice, finally reading some stuff that I've been meaning to and just watching movies. But yeah, it's been pretty uneventful. How about you? Are you doing well? Is everything great? No. Oh. I think I'm having like potentially the worst week or two of like my recent life, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> It's been really shit. So sorry to the listeners who are just going to be like, damn, that sucks. (laughs) But it really has been like fucking horrific, to be honest. I'm definitely like at the point in lockdown where I'm really struggling to maintain kind of any semblance of motivation. It's hard working in like a creative industry as well, I think, during lockdown because there's no inspiration. Like I'm really struggling to write articles that I'm like, really interested in I'm struggling to come up with ideas and pictures like when I get to write a feature I'm like I don't even there's nothing I really want to write I'm just fucking depressed man like and being depressed is so bad for your job when your job is to be creative and like interesting (laughs) so it's made work really really hard and then on top of that like I've kind of just been a bit sick for the last two weeks and I had to do like a bunch of tests which I don't know the results of yet so I'll be finding that out later this week and then on top of that I am currently locked in an intense fight with my real estate and it has depleted any happiness I had left <laughs> it's just like been so shit and they are being absolute fucking assholes to me and I'm just like constantly fighting with them and AGL because this whole thing I'm gonna give you all a recap because I'm just angry I need to rant about it (laughs) (laughs) okay so just story time story time for five minutes I just need to get it off my chest I need someone to care so like I got my electricity bill for mind you I've been in this apartment for maybe about two months now but it was Mm. less than two months when I got my electricity bill and for like 55 days of living on my own in a tiny apartment that does not have air conditioning or heating or like anything my bill is $700. Make it make sense. I don't understand. Yeah, no. so I called AGL because obviously that's fucked. Like, obviously, I'm not capable of using... Literally, on my bill statement thing, it says, like, the average usage for four-person households, the average usage for five-person households, the average usage for your household, and it's nearly double the five-person household. And I live alone. All the things I have plugged in are my fucking fridge, my TV, and I use my microwave quite a bit. Like my hot water, honestly, I'm at the point of like lockdown depression where I'm not showering daily. So that's not the problem here. Like what the fuck is going on? Anyway, it's obviously fucked. And I like wasn't too initially worried because I was like, okay, I'll call them. There's obviously been like some kind of mistake. I call AGL. The guy's really, really unhelpful. And Miss pretty much goes, numbers don't lie. Those are numbers. It's really horrible to me. I cry literally on the phone. And then he's like, Sars can't help you and hangs up not productive, not helpful. He told me to email my real estate. He was like, like it's, it's their problem, which I don't understand how it's their problem, but I emailed my real estate and was like, hey, I got my electricity bill for 55 days and it's really, really high and I don't know what's wrong. AGL is telling me that it's like maybe a fault in the apartment and they're just like, no, it's not us. Call AGL and tell them to come and check it themselves. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then I call AGL again. The guy I get this time is much nicer, I will say. I gave him a 10 out of 10 for customer service help because he was really nice to me and really understanding because I was definitely like having a bit of a meltdown. Um, And he was just like, look, clearly something is wrong because like I have like four TVs in my house and we don't use this much electricity. That is fucked. Like it is actually fucked. I don't know how that's happened to you. Uh, I've looked at the numbers. Apparently somebody did come and do a read at your apartment. Um, But if I was you, I would check the meter just to make sure that the numbers on there are the same as on the bill because maybe there's been a mistake in that way. But otherwise, I honestly don't know what it is. The only other thing I can think of would be some kind of fault in the apartment, like an electrical fault. And I'm like, okay, 
at least now I have some direction. So I email my real estate and I'm like, hi, where's the electricity meter? Because I don't have one in my apartment. Like I can't see it in the apartment. So I'm like, where is it? I just need to check it so I you know, can find out what the fuck is going on with this bill that is obviously absurd that I'm not going to fucking pay. And they were like, sorry, we can't provide you access to that. What? And I was like, excuse me? Like everybody checks their electricity meter. It's normal. Like most people do their own reads. That's quite normal. You know, like I, I need to see it. Like I, I don't know what to tell you. Like I need to see the meter. And they're like, sorry, it's unsafe. We recommend you ask AGL to come in and check it for you. And I'm like, I, no, like I need to check it because they've already checked it and it's wrong. I'm, te- I, I'm pretty sure it's wrong or something, something is wrong. I need to check it because I can't go any steps further in resolving this fucking bill until, you know, I see the meter. And they're just like, sorry, we can't help you with that. And I was like, well, you better fucking help me with that. Like, oh my God, I was going, I was honestly like on the verge of going full Karen because I was just like, this is crazy. Like, this is, this is absurd. Like, everybody should have access to their meter. I'm pretty sure that's the right I have as a tenant. And it's literally just been a back and forth now for the past week of them being like, no. And me being like, fucking help me do, I need to do this. Like, this is not negotiable. And then them being like, we don't, sorry, it's because it's padlocked. Like, my meter box is padlocked and I can't open it because I don't have the key. And they're like, sorry, we don't have a key. And I'm like, well, who the fuck has the key then? Because according to AGL, who I called again for the third time and was like, I don't know what to do. My real estate isn't helping me. And they were like, look, somebody legally has to have the key. Either it's your real estate, your strata or the landlord. But like somebody has it. And that is like a thing that they have to have for safety reasons. They always need to have the key. So somebody has it. I don't know why they're not telling you they have it, but like, I can't help you until you sort that out. I'm very sorry. I really, I believe you that something's wrong. But until you check the meter, we really can't do anything else for you. We are the third party. We can't send a contractor in for you because we contract them from Osgrid. Like it's not our staff member. We can't do anything for you. Fair enough. The guy was really helpful. He's right. I need to check the fucking meter. And literally all day, every day this week has been me back and forth thing between real estate, between strata. Like somebody get me a fucking key for God's sake so I can check this meter. And then real estate being like, oh, you know, you're prohibited from accessing that because it's common property. And I'm just like prohibited from accessing that. It's my fucking electrical meter. Like if I don't have one in my apartment, then I should be able to access the common property one. And it's just honestly been a nightmare. Like this is ongoing. Like like I just sent an email like 10 minutes ago, pretty much losing my shit at my real estate agent and just being like this fucking, you are being ridiculous help me. This is the legislation that says I have access to it. Every other person I have spoken to is telling me I have access to it, except you. Sort your shit out. Uh, And I'm probably going to end up calling the tenants union or like reporting this or something because I'm actually just like losing my fucking mind now. Like this is like, it's ruining my life. Like it's fucking weeding its way into like every other part of my existence. It's affecting my work. Like it's all I can think about. And I'm like just getting stressed and crying over it every day and being depressed. And it's some bullshit. It's some bullshit. Anyways, anyways, that's that was the, my the saga rant. for now. We'll keep you updated, guys, in two weeks from now. If my electricity bill is actually due in two weeks, so we'll probably know by then what the fuck is going on. I will let you guys know. Maybe poor if I am forced to pay this electricity bill that is not mine. But yeah, it's just the whole thing is stressing me. It's also just a time where, like, you know, I'm not fucking balling. I moved out for the first time. I spent like thousands of dollars furnishing my apartment from scratch and like paying rent. I'm I'm too broke for this shit. Like I cannot be dealing with a $700 electricity bill for 55 days. That's some bullshit. <sighs> okay. Deep breath. <laughs> deep breath. I feel like I've worked myself up. You transition our energies. I don't know. Maybe I can like channel this rage productively. I don't know. I kind of, I'm, it's like either be rageful or cry at this point And I've already cried a lot. So I'm just. So let's just be rageful. Let's just be rageful. Okay. Look, let's move into some follow-up. I've got a couple of things that I want to talk about. First one is the New South Wales case numbers, which I feel like is relevant to my anxiety and depression. I think we hit our highest of 1,200 cases like yesterday. I think it's 1,100 today. I don't know what it'll be tomorrow on Wednesday when this goes up. Really fucking high is the point. But you know what? Like, that's actually not the part that scares me. The part that scares me is we no longer know how many cases are being investigated. That actually stresses me out because before, like, New South Wales Health was obviously updating the exposure site list every day so that I could check it every day because I know that contact tracing is a little bit behind by a couple of days. And so having that exposure site list was good for me and, like, just my anxiety because I would check it, like, every day and be like, great, I have not been to any of these grocery shops. We're all good because I am in an LGA of concern. So I do worry a little bit about being exposed to COVID and I've already been to casual contact twice. So it's stressful. Um, But then New South Wales Health stopped updating the exposure site list 
I'm assuming because of like short staffing, there wasn't like clear reasons as to why, but like I'm assuming they're very overwhelmed with all the cases and all the contact tracing and stuff they have to do. And updating the exposure site list is probably just something they don't have enough manpower for, which I'm sympathetic to. But now, as of a few days ago, they are also... So previously, when we got the daily COVID numbers, like in the press conference, it'd be like the amount of cases we have, the amount of people are in hospital, the amount of people that have died, and then like the amount of cases that were out in the community and the amount that are still being investigated. So like, for example, if there were like 800 cases, there would be like 60 of those were infectious in the community And we are actually still investigating the other 740 or whatever, which like was scary information. It's scary to know that there are 740 people who we don't know like where they've been, but they're definitely positive. But at least like knowing that was kind of like I felt like I had a bit of control, especially in conjunction with like the exposure site list. But now we don't know how far behind the state is in contact tracing. And that like kind of stresses me out because I'm like, okay, so even if like a thousand people we're out in the community, which is obviously not, it's not going to be that high of a number. But if it is, like, I just straight up won't know until quite a while later if I was at a, like, site, which stresses me out because I go grocery shopping and I don't want to spread. Like, if I, like, did come across something and then I went shopping afterwards, like, I don't want to have that on my conscience. It just kind of stresses me out a bit. Yeah, it's just the ambiguity of the situation. Yeah. At least before we knew what we knew and we knew what we didn't know. But now we don't know what we don't know, you know? (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. And it's no good. And I believe case numbers are expected to continue rising until like October, until we get higher vaccination numbers, which is quite stressful. But yeah, some good news in regards to that is I will be fully vaxxed this Friday, which I'm really, really, really excited about getting my second jab. It's going to alleviate, I think, some of my like, because I'm definitely becoming a hermit. Like I don't even leave my house to go for walks which I know is unhealthy. And like my coworkers are like, girl, go outside and get some sunlight. Like just walk around the block. And I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm going to catch COVID. And I know I'm being like overly anxious because I have had my jab. And also I'm not coming into contact with somebody on the street. And there's been no outdoor transmission in New South Wales. But still, I am just, I think all of my anxiety is just generalizing because I'm like in my house 24-7 and I don't socialize with anyone. And I mean, you guys have probably noticed I've barely been on Instagram like this past week because I've just been dealing with all of life's stresses and spiraling. So yeah, uh, everybody get vaccinated so lockdown can end so I can like have some semblance of mental health back into my life. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to bring up as well was just kind of an update on like Australia's response to the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan because it's been really fucking infuriating, to be honest. We've seen that Scott Morrison said that despite seeing what's happened in Afghanistan, we still as a country will be rejecting Afghan refugees that come by boat, they will not be resettled, they will not be given visas, etc, etc, because they should do it the right way, quote unquote. Which just like is so heartless because like we've literally seen footage of like Afghan refugees clinging to the bottom of planes because there's not enough transport to get them out of there. And I just think, especially now when there's been like terrorist attacks, like there's been like people blowing up the fucking airport. Like how how are people meant to catch a plane? Like explain, explain how people are meant to come here safely. It just makes no sense. It's racist. And I know you all know that, but I just feel like I just wanted to like remind us to like be angry about it and to talk about it because I feel like now that kind of the initial interest in like Afghanistan has kind of faded and it's not really on everybody's minds anymore. We kind of just lost track of what the political movements are around it. And like, aside from the boat thing, um, like Scott Morrison also said that we aren't going to rescue all the Afghans that worked for us over there, which is again, fucking absurd. Like these are people that we employed who like gave us their allyship and we just abandoned them. All the ADF interpreters, like not all of them are going to be rescued. A bunch of the guards from the Australian embassy, like the Afghan guards in Kabul who worked with the Australian embassy have been denied employment visas to come here, which again is some bullshit. And then on top of that, Peter Dutton said that any Afghans who then help or work with or like lays with the Taliban in any way for their own survival, like if they do it because it's that or die, we won't rescue them because they help. Even if they did it for survival, like that's too bad. Shouldn't have helped the Taliban. As if like people should die for a country that doesn't even want to fucking like help them. It's just, it's so nonsensical, all of it. Yeah. Especially, I mean, that's just been the position for, you know, however long now, uh, essentially. And so many people believe it as well like you know oh i have no issue with uh, immigration but you need to do it do it the right way because it's unfair for the people that actually went through 
the the formal procedures. I mean, firstly, not just in the case of the Taliban uh, and, and Afghanistan, but if you're escaping persecution, for example, how are you meant to escape your country in formal or legitimate, quote, legitimate means? Yeah, well, it's just one of those things that will never make sense because the whole, like, definition of being persecuted by that government is that they want to hurt you. Obviously, they're not going to, like, sign your little permission slip to, like, leave the country for a better life when they're actively trying to kill you. Like, it's not, you know, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the same can be said for the Biloela family, who I think everybody at this point is probably very familiar with. Like, they're Tamil refugees. They're, like, from a persecuted minority. They're afraid that if they get deported back to their country, they're going to be killed. Like, that's it. That's it's, it's literally as simple as that. And to think that, like, the government can still be, like, well, you should have come here the right way, is absurd. They would die if they were made known to local authorities. So what are you talking about? And like, I feel like the average person in Australia is really supportive of the Bilawella family. But interestingly, that doesn't seem to be extended to like all refugees and asylum seekers. Like, is it because this family has become palatable because their Queensland town wants them back? And they're, they're good Australians because they got jobs and their daughters are born here. And it's like, they obviously are important and deserve to be able to settle here, as does, like, every asylum seeker and refugee family. But I know you guys know that, but I wanted to bring it up because I just don't want the conversation around this to lose its momentum. I think it's really important to maintain that pressure, especially because we're not too far off elections now as well. And it's looking like Scott Morrison is, has the favourable poll at the moment over, like, other leaders, which is kind of fucked. So not It's that- moments like this where I just realise how disconnected yeah. I am because the communities that I reside in clearly are not reflective of the public at large and sometimes it is just a bit uh, disillusioning to really grasp that i feel that it definitely kind of makes me realize like how racist australia is i know how racist australia is obviously but like i'm also in my bubble of people that aren't that racist and i say that racist (laughs) 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 but then like we just see like fucking scott morrison mr i stopped these we're in the boats get elected again and it's like wow y'all really hate us like y'all hate brown people because you wouldn't vote for this guy if you didn't hate brown people so actually y'all just racist it's depressing um as is everything else right now but yes look stay stay on that conversation hold people accountable be angry about it maintain those conversations like around you with your family as well because i think like a lot of people's boomer parents vote for like liberals or whatever, just because like historically they have. And like, if you actually talk to them about these issues, they'd probably be sympathetic with people like the Biloela family, but they're just like so disconnected from the actual impacts of these politicians because a lot of the time these people are like either upper middle class or they're white or like whatever. And I just feel like small types of change you can do with yourself are literally just having conversations with people. You don't know whose mind you can change and you should make the effort to do that if you can. But yeah, let's get into today's topic. That was a very heavy follow-up slash me just like crying about my problems, but it is what it is. Follow-up and therapy session. Follow-up and therapy session. It's not like I'm going to real therapy right now, so love this for me. But anyway, let's get into today's topic. If you've been on TikTok a lot lately, or you just kind of follow a lot of low-level Insta- or any influencers really on Instagram, you've probably come across the term no ethical consumption under capitalism, but you've probably come across it in a very specific usage, which is something I have seen a lot, particularly for myself on TikTok. Because now that uh, Shane hauls are a really big thing and because Shane is so cheap, like I see like TikTok influencers literally spend like $500 to $1,000 on a Shein haul where they literally have like hundreds of items of clothing because it's so cheap. And then like do a try on. It's like this whole like fashion TikTok thing. And then you'll see people in the comments call them out and be like, this is kind of fucked. Like you are contributing to fast fashion and, you know, blah, 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 blah. This is like kind of unethical and I really don't think you should be doing this. And can you please like do more ethical fashion or whatever? And then the TikToker or influencer in question will be like, well, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism anyway. So actually I can do this sheen haul or I can, you know, partner with like ASOS or I don't know, whatever companies there are. I've been seeing it a lot. I've been seeing it everywhere. I've been seeing the term no ethical consumption under capitalism be constantly misused and misdirected to shelter like bad practices of influencers. And it's really fucked, to be honest, and quite frustrating. It's quite frustrating as an anti-capitalist to see that happening, like knowing that that's just not the way this term is meant to be used. So today we are going to talk about the term no ethical consumption under capitalism and like how people are using it versus what it means versus what it should mean versus how you can implement that mindset in your life. So 
So let's get into it. I'm going to start this explanation with a case study because I think that might be the easiest way to really kind of get into how this term is being used and why we don't quite agree with that. My case study is Beyonce. So you may or may not have seen in like kind of the media recently and particularly on TikTok and Twitter, Beyonce has been copying a lot of flack for her recent partnership with Tiffany and Co. So in the recent ad campaign, Beyonce is featured wearing the Tiffany diamond, which is like one of the biggest diamonds like ever. It's a massive yellow, it's like a hundred and something carat diamond, which only three women before Beyonce have ever worn. I think the women are uh, it was some random like like Lady Gaga was one of them. Well, it was Lady Gaga, Audrey Hepburn, and one other woman that I can't remember, but she was like someone I didn't know. Like she was some random wife of like some American politician. But anyway, the point is, three other women have worn it, and Beyonce is the first black woman to wear the Tiffany diamond. And it was announced with a lot of excitement. The campaign Tiffany and Co is trying to do a rebrand right now to kind of seem a little bit more woke. And it was instantly met with backlash from a lot of people because of the history of blood diamonds. So I don't know how many of you guys are across the term blood diamond, but it refers to diamonds that are kind of mined in circumstances where they're then sold to like either warmongers or warlords or like they're used to fund an invading army. But it's like diamonds that are mined to fund like violent stuff, pretty much, if I had to kind of really simplify it. The Tiffany diamond technically doesn't fit the current quite narrow definition of a blood diamond. However, it was mined by extremely exploited black laborers in South Africa in the 1800s. And it's floating around on Twitter. You can see like quotes from the people who ran the mine and it's pretty fucking disgusting, like really racist, horrific brutalization of these miners who, uh, are the ones who mined this diamond. And if you like look on, like if you just look into the Tiffany diamond, it says it was discovered in South Africa by Charles Tiffany. And it's like, no, it was mined through like fucking exploited labor. And like these people were treated as like second class citizens. Like this is, no, (laughs) it wasn't discovered. Like even the, I mean, you guys know the term discovered is extremely loaded because of colonization. But the point is the Tiffany diamond really is a symbol of colonizing and colonization and like colonial brutality in South Africa. And while it may not fit the current definition of a blood diamond as a diamond involved in like funding war or violent activities, it's not a stretch to call it a blood diamond because if we count colonization as like war or or invading or violent activity, then it, it is relevant. It is. And that's, I guess that's the argument that a lot of people have made in slamming Beyonce wearing the Tiffany diamond because their claim is you as like a media personality have built your brand off the empowerment and liberation of black people and particularly black women but you are not liberating any black women by wearing a blood diamond if anything you're wearing a symbol of colonialism and that's not cool and it just goes to show the class divide between you and like actual black communities so there's been a lot of criticism especially from black women writers about this blood diamond. But then a lot of Beyonce fans have kind of come in defense of Beyonce and been like, well, actually most diamonds are blood diamonds. This is true. Most blood diamonds are blood diamonds or like we don't know where they've come from. It's extremely rare to come across a diamond that was like mined, quote, ethically. This is very true. Most people that own a diamond, it's probably a blood diamond. So it's not fair criticism of Beyonce. Other people have pointed out like you would never go this hard on like another person for wearing a diamond, but because it's a black woman, you're making this really intense scrutinization, which I mean, I do want to point out for a sec though. Like it is quite different that people didn't criticize Lady Gaga versus did criticize Beyonce because like Beyonce's brand is built on like the love for Africa, you know, her like recent music has been like an ode to Africa. That's her brand. Like her brand is love, respect and understanding and appreciation of her African ancestry. So like, yeah, it is a bit fucking weird that she would then wear the Tiffany diamond. But anyway, 
And another point that's kind of come across is, well, really, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. There is no ethical way that she could ever wear a diamond. And are you telling her she can just like never wear jewelry and never wear diamonds? This is ridiculous. You're holding her to a higher standard than you hold diamond companies. And that's not fair. And I think that's the argument that really interests me today. And that's quite a specific example. As I said earlier, I'm seeing it in a lot of low-level conversations by influencers. But I found the Beyonce one quite interesting because, yeah, there's pretty much no ethical diamonds out there. That's true. Do we ban Beyonce from wearing diamonds? Or is there perhaps a much more nuanced way to talk about this? So I guess maybe we should like get into what it means to say like no ethical consumption under capitalism and what these people mean when they say it in regards to Beyonce or other influences. Yeah, because this is a term that's been circulating for as long as I can remember, but it's only recently that I have seen that has been twisted around in this very strange way. Yeah, I agree. I think I've always been aware of no ethical consumption under capitalism, but I think because I mean, even the word capitalism has really kind of come to the forefront of a lot of like just regular everyday conversations and especially around the kind of younger Gen Z group that are becoming politicized in a way that past generations never were, but also like they don't quite have the knowledge as well for a lot of the terms that are thrown at them. And they're kind of using a lot of political terms and then like not really understanding how to use them. And it's kind of just a bit messy, which is honestly, I kind of want to do a whole nother episode just on that. Um, But yeah, so it's kind of no ethical consumption under capitalism is becoming an extremely common term. It's very overused, become a bit of a buzzword. I think when people are using it in the context that I'm describing, what they're trying to say is, what's the alternative? Everything is unethical. Everything you have is sourced by some kind of you know, if it's like fast fashion, all fashion is kind of, you know, has exploited garment workers. All diamonds are probably blood diamonds. Everything you own is probably born in some kind of unethical labor. So really, like, what's the point of this criticism? That's not fair. You're just attacking this person and you're not being productive. And this is just bullying, which I don't think is true. (laughs) And I think maybe the key point and probably the most interesting point and probably the center of this episode is that they're not quite wrong, But they're not quite right either. It's like the argument is true, but it's being employed maybe disingenuously or in kind of the wrong way. So when we talk about no ethical consumption under capitalism, yes, it is true that most things you own or everything I would actually argue that you own was produced unethically. There is kind of nothing that you can own that wasn't produced unethically because we live under capitalism, which is an economic system that relies on exploitation of labor to create profits. Every business that you buy your clothes from has to create a profit to exist under capitalism, right? In order for it to create a profit, there has to be a gap between how much they pay their workers and how much they sell items for. And generally, that gap is actually much deeper than you would expect. It's why you can go to Kmart and buy a $5 t-shirt. It's because the garment worker was paid 80 cents because Kmart as a massive corporation has like thousands of employees that they need to pay. They have to pay rent for their business building. There's all these things they have to, like expenses that come with having a business. And they also need to like sell their clothes and create enough profit, not just to pay thousands of people and their rent and their utilities, but then for the CEO to have like a significant bonus as well. And you can't make that money without then taking it out of the pockets of your workers. It's not possible. It's why, you know, it's, I mean, among the similar vein of why like billionaires are inherently unethical because in order to like create that much wealth, it has to be taken from somebody. So it's like these people that come up with like in the comments of like Beyonce, Twitter, yarns and being like, oh, don't hate on my queen because actually there's no ethical consumption under capitalism are not wrong that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. But maybe we need to have a deeper conversation on how that translates into your everyday life and who you can defend with that term. Because the fact that nothing that you own wasn't created out of exploitation doesn't mean you don't kind of have like a moral responsibility to try and make good, informed, educated decisions. And I think like with the Beyonce example, like Beyonce is extremely rich. (laughs) Beyonce is not, you know, your average Stacey or Susan that like did a $50 Shane haul and probably works in retail in the background or makes like an income of like 60,000 a year. This is Beyonce, 
Girl can afford to make good. She could afford to get her own clothes made and actually pay everybody a decent wage. And that would probably be the most ethical you could be under capitalism. It's like to hire somebody and be like, I will pay you this much per hour on top of the standard rate to make me this thing. And she doesn't. I mean, I'm pretty sure that her company, Blue Ivy, which is her active work company, was like exposed for underpaying and exploiting like black army workers. <laughs> like Beyonce, I mean, has the means to actually pay people, pay workers, you know, specifically the correct wage or a good fair wage and doesn't. And I think that's exactly what you're getting at because all the people legitimately arguing in a not disingenuous way that there's no ethical consumption of the capitalism would also argue that her paying workers to create uh, garments somewhere in that supply chain, there would be an exploitation uh, of labor or of resources uh, Etc. But that doesn't mean that there's not levels of exploitation. That like some things can be more exploitative than others, even if that lesser option is still exploitative in some way. Yeah, and you know she as well, in particular, as an incredibly rich person, like has the financial means to make more ethical decisions than like you or I have. Because like for me, between you know choices between slow fashion and fast fashion, where like a quote unquote ethically made garment like a dress can probably cost you know upwards of a hundred dollars um in slow fashion kind of companies but it'll cost me 30 bucks on asos and as somebody who doesn't make a huge amount of money like chances are i probably will buy the 30 dollar one because i got bills to pay and i want to have like money to treat myself under capitalism (laughs) like you know what i mean so it's just not really comparable and i think we need to remember who we use this term against okay because the term no ethical consumption under capitalism i don't think exists to take away responsibility from celebrities and influencers on making good decisions. Yeah, if you're using it as an excuse, you're using it incorrectly. Yes. So then let's maybe talk about how we would use the term. I personally think that the no ethical consumption under capitalism term is used not as like a justification for what you're doing, but as a reminder of who is responsible for exploitation and for the way the world functions. No ethical consumption under capitalism for me and how I personally use it is a reminder that there's nothing I can do on an individual level to combat exploitation under capitalism. This is an issue that is going to exist under this economic system because that is how capitalism exists. It's necessary for it to function. And it's about reminding me that it's not my fault that Kmart doesn't pay their workers. It's Kmart's fault and capitalism's fault that they don't pay their workers. And it's just a reminder of who to direct your energy at and who to direct your anger at and who is responsible for things. It's a reminder of class consciousness for me. But I think that being said, I would never use it to like justify why so-and-so can do a $1,000 sheen haul. Like that's not what it's for because that has nothing to do with class consciousness and it's not i think it's also people like to co-opt class consciousness to justify their own bad behavior as working class people as well like you can be a working class person that has a thousand dollar sheen haul that's like you're not being class conscious by just being like oh well i can do that because i'm not rich like that's no (laughs) do you have a thousand dollars to spend on sheen you can spend it elsewhere Yeah, I think of it as less of a criticism and more it's just a matter of fact. It's just a reminder of the economic system. Like, Mm. for example, with the the blood diamonds, uh, that is sort of unambiguously exploitative. But on the other hand, there are more sustainable options or ethical options uh, that are circulating for diamonds. Uh, You were telling me you'll have to remind me of the, the specific Oh, diamond well, alternative oh yeah i was uh, i was looking at some rings the other day not that i can afford one and oh my god i really can't remember what it's called but it started with m mm. i'll have to find out later but anyway it's a really common it's becoming really common now apparently among millennials for as an alternative and engagement rings to diamonds because it's lab grown and significantly cheaper but looks pretty much the same And yeah, like, I mean, a lot of millennials and like Gen Z people are not fucking out here affording diamond rings and diamond earrings. Oh, by the way, just a little side note, but it was quite funny. Um, Beyonce's mom like came out in defense of Beyonce and the Tiffany diamond. 
and was like, you know, all you online social justice warriors, like how many diamonds do you own? Do you know their origin? And I'm like, sis, y'all think I own a diamond? (laughs) Y'all think these Gen Z, like teens canceling Beyonce own diamonds? Are are you kidding? We don't own diamonds. So out of touch. But yeah, anyways, I bring those up because that is becoming an alternative for a lot of uh, millennials, which I think is a, a really positive thing. But it's also important to recognize that that doesn't mean that those things aren't completely 100% ethical, that they're non-exploitative because they were made in a capitalist mode of production, which means they are inherently exploitative, that there was a worker within that chain uh, that was paid less than the value that they created. And then even in the the very rare example that they weren't, I imagine that it's being produced on stolen land, for example. Mm. Like it's just no ethical consumption under capitalism is just a reminder that within this mode of production within the society as it currently is, consumption habits aren't going to change the world, that you can't live a completely ethical life. And not that that is a justification for purposefully picking the least ethical choices that are at your disposal. But it's a reminder that potentially uh, different alternatives or different ways of thinking are necessary. Well, I think it's a reminder of radical action. Mm. Like, I I really like what you said about the fact that we can't consume our way out of exploitation. That's not possible. We can't buy our way out of capitalism. We can't, you know, we're not going to cure exploitation of workers by like making good consumer decisions. That's not the way it's going to work because it's always going to be a market for exploitation as well. Like under capitalism, first of all, exploitation is necessary, but even, even if just like hypothetically, even though it's impossible, but hypothetically a company like does everything right, maybe they somehow don't work on stolen land and everything they sell they grew themselves and it's all extremely ethical and they pay everybody exactly the exact amount of value that they create except even if hypothetically that happened it wouldn't matter because naturally those things would cost more and maybe some of us could afford it but there will always be a group of people that have to buy less ethical products because that's what they can afford and those are the cheaper products and that will always exist so like we it's not about consumerism like we're not going to win by just buying ethically and that's not a reason to not buy ethically or you know quote unquote ethically but it's more of a reminder that your action can't end with your consumerism that there is more to this that we need to have bigger conversations that there's more dismantling that needs to happen and abolishment that needs to happen because exploitation is a necessary element of capitalism and I think that's true that a lot of people uh, believe that by simply changing your consumption habits, you can have a real radical, important change on the world or a really substantial change on the world. Uh, and I think that sort of maps out maybe the three camps that was sort of jumping towards in this episode, the, the three sort of positions people have, which is one, no ethical consumption under capitalism as an excuse for poor behavior, which is what we're critiquing. Two, maybe the side we're on, that no ethical consumption under capitalism is true, but, you know, not an excuse, but it's just a reality and it's a way of thinking about things. And then the third camp, which is maybe critiquing both the first and second camp, which is that thinking no ethical consumption under capitalism is unproductive because, like, where do you go from there? In fact, they believe that you can shop ethically that consumption habits can change the world and then that we do have some power as individuals within the system to be better. And I think in some ways there's a bit of truth to every camp. Yeah, like I think with the first one, they're kind of right that like, I mean, they are right that there is no ethical consumption under capitalism and I totally see how that can be used to justify buying whatever the fuck you want because, well, it's all unethical anyway, so what's the difference? Like they're not completely wrong. And then there's us that are like, Nah, we wouldn't really use it that way. It's more of like a framework to view the world in, a reminder of all the ways that capitalism exploits us and perhaps some encouragement towards radical thinking. And then there's the last one that's like, well, we do have actually some individual power in our consumerism and we should buy products that are more ethical, which again, not wrong, but like the problem with that maybe third mindset is that it tends to end there and it's not actually critical of capitalism. That's the frustrating part. Like, I feel like it doesn't take that extra step. Like, you can think about buying the right products all you want, but the bad or unethical products are still going to exist under this system. And you ignoring them doesn't make them disappear. So we need to have the extra step of thinking of how do we stop those from happening in the first place? How do we stop exploitation in the first place? Like, what about that mode of thinking? Which is kind of where Mitch and I sit in camp two. 
There was a magazine article that I read, which I will link, that came out as a result of all the TikTok influencers doing sheen hauls. And I really liked this quote talking about, like, not the consumption under capitalism, but also the consumer's place in that. They said, as a result of capitalism, the blame for environmental damage and worker abuse has been shifted onto the consumer by implying that if you shop fast fashion, you are directly responsible for this abuse. This is not true. A consumer is not the problem for being alive in a deceitful society. I love that sentence. I think that really much kind of sums up a lot of it. It's like, it is not the consumer's fault for existing under capitalism. Inherently, we are going to have to do things or buy things or use things that are unethically sourced or unethically made. That's the necess- that's, that is, you know, just the fucking reality of living under capitalism. However, that doesn't mean we can't be like trying to, I guess, be a bit more responsible because the point of no ethical consumption under capitalism isn't to tell you you can do whatever you want, it's to remind you who is responsible for exploitation and who to target your frustration at. So while I was doing research for this episode and just looking at the phrase no ethical consumption under capitalism, I was looking at articles that were in a way coming from all of the three camps I think we've sort of elucidated. Like the TikTokers that are using the phrase sort of flippantly and then the people who are like criticizing those TikTokers, but then that third group, which is sort of interrogating the idea itself that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Uh, and maybe that's not a very productive way of looking at things. And I think in a way, those articles to me were the most interesting because I think they were really sort of instructive and illuminating of the way uh, that is almost productive. And maybe we can learn a bit from these optimistic folk, but I think they just missed the mark slightly. And I think by looking at them, we can sort of see uh, and strengthen the other point of view. Yeah. So when you look up no ethical consumption under capitalism on Google, on the first page, I saw a blog post by a site called the Green Stars Project. And essentially that site, from what I can see, seems to be a really positive project about rating products by their sustainability, trying to make ethical choices and trying to inform consumers about making more ethical purchases. And on that post that I saw, it was about ethical consumerism and essentially asking, is there such a thing? So in some ways, it's taking the opposite approach to us in that sort of third camp, as we saw before, which is maybe ethical consumption under capitalism is possible if we can do the right things. And if it's not possible at the moment, maybe we should be demanding certain things. And I think for the most part, the post is really well-meaning. And I don't mean to put it on display here as something to pick on or something to criticize too much. But I think it can really help us understand where these differing ideologies come from and and how they meet and why I think that these sort of consumeristic approaches fall flat in some ways. So I don't think they're doing anything wrong. I just want to clarify. But I think it's really interesting and will help sort of strengthen where we're coming from. So the blog is mainly arguing that saying no ethical consumption under capitalism isn't the most productive thing. And in the post, they map out sort of two things that we can do to turn the world for the better. And I think those are very interesting. So I just want to map them out now. So I'll quote them. They say, but there are two ways in which we can take a turn for the better. One, a change of mindset in a large proportion of humanity, including some corporate and political leaders. And two, sufficient consumer demand for products and services that are respectful to people and the environment. Before you get into describing those, I just want to note, like, I feel like a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with those two arguments because I think we see a lot in like quite liberal ideology like that's I feel like that's maybe and I know I'm jumping the gun a bit here because you haven't explained anything but <laughs> I'm <laughs> go just, ahead. maybe I'm just making a note for our listeners as they keep listening but this is like the difference between liberal and radical thinking for sure because I mean that sounds very sensible it's true that our mindsets are caught up in maybe over consumption maybe we want too many things so if we change our mindset we can you know change the things that are produced and then building off that if we change our mindset and demand different things, then we can begin to demand things that are ethical. So really, that sounds like a very realistic way of changing the system from within. But obviously, we have some issues with just the approach that they're taking when mapping out this mindset. So firstly, with their first point, a change in mindset in the large proportion of humanity will be necessary. Uh, it's important to note that capitalism isn't a mindset. It's not a way of thinking about things. Changing the world isn't a matter of ideas. You know, capitalism is a very real material thing. 
capitalism is incorporated in the way production, the buildings, factories are built and the way that humans relate to each other in not a social way, but in a material way. And as great as it would be that the world could change if everyone just changed their mind on the way something is, this is exactly what Marx, you know, the most famous anti-capitalist, was emphasizing that you can't understand the world as a matter of ideals. History cannot be understood in terms of the ideas that people had, but instead must be understood in terms of what are called material conditions. Capitalism operates through an exploitative mode of production inherently. That's what capitalism is. So changing mindsets won't change the mode of production. They may change what's produced in the mode of production, but if that production Mm. is inherently exploitative, it's not going to really do something that is going to radically make the world better for everyone. Yeah, and I want to point out as well, the idea that it's just a mindset problem implies that people just don't know that what we're doing or what they're doing is unethical. You know, for example, let's take the fossil fuel industry, which is built on the exploitation of land, stolen land. Like the idea that it's just a mindset implies that we're just going to change these fossil fuel leaders' minds and then they'll understand that what they're doing is actually really harmful for the environment and we'll, you know, choose a different mode of energy, which is like just it's quite naive, right? Like it's quite simplistic because they know what they're doing. Like we've got a million and one studies telling us this is bad for us. The UN's IPCC report is literally saying well, we need to stop fossil fuels or we're all going to die. Like it's not, at least for this example, it's not like they don't know, but they're making a decision to create profit and changing over to renewables will cost them money that they don't want to spend. So they are pretty willing to fuck the planet if it means maintaining those profits. And I don't think we're going to change their mind with facts because we've already tried that. It's not about their mindset. It's not about what they do or don't know. It implies like an ignorance on the behalf of like exploiters. And that's just not the case. And like Mitch said as well, in terms of, you know, the mode of production, like I'm sure the CEO of like Kmart, like doesn't personally love the idea of exploiting garment workers and i don't think they're like yes exploit them harder like i that's not how these people think it's not like they just don't know what they're doing is wrong or they're just like lavishing in it but it's just that this is literally the reality of capitalism like they can't afford to have kmart and have the profits they do if they like pay their workers correctly it's not possible because under capitalism profits are like the value of the workers uh, what they're creating and then you pay them less than the value so that you create a surplus you create a profit that's what profit is and profits are necessary for businesses to function under capitalism or for any you know consuming to happen under capitalism so like it's important i guess to remember that it's not as simple as mindset and it'd be great if it was but we would have fixed things ages ago if it was just about mindset and that's exactly true and that deals with the sort of second part of their first point here which is in parentheses they say a change of mindset will be important including some corporate and political leaders. I love how it says some. Some, (laughs) yes. Not all of them. Well, (laughs) maybe a majority, they think. But it's true, we'll never see a change in mindset from corporate and political leaders. And it's not even really their fault. It's, you know, an idea that I love from Marx, and I'm going to paraphrase, it's that capitalists are merely the personification of capital. Capital, irrespective of humans, has its own logic. It has its own way of changing the world, of ordering the world. And capitalists merely, to be a capitalist, follow the logic of capital. Capital has its own truths in a way. And the same thing goes for political leaders that exist to uphold the capitalist system and work for the ruling class. In reality, for a capitalist to be a capitalist and to be a successful one, they necessarily have to exploit their workers in order to be profitable, exactly what you were saying. And since capitalists are always trying to expand, because again, they have to, to become successful, uh, they are always trying to undercut other businesses by offering the same product or service for a lower price, which means that there's inherently an antagonistic relationship between employer and employee, because they're always trying to pay you as little as possible and prices essentially always have to go down. So in the random case that we have some awakened capitalist that suddenly has a change of heart and wants to pay all of their workers a non-exploitative wage, not only would there be no profit for the capitalist, but another company would simply have the same exact item for cheaper. So yeah. that's the thing. That's, that's what we mean when we say that capitalists in a way don't have a choice or that they're just the personification of capital. It's that they have to operate in a certain way. Well, they wouldn't be capitalists. Exactly. If they weren't. Or they wouldn't be capitalists for very long. Yeah. It's part of, it's the necessary definition of being a capitalist. And 
you know, capitalism in general to have exploitation. And if you could do it ethically, you wouldn't be a capitalist or be living under capitalism. So that's kind of the point. They're, you know, complete opposites. And like, I mean, I feel like the second part about, you know, sufficient consumer demands for products that are ethical is kind of what I talked about earlier, where it's like, and just even relevant to what Mitch has said now, because the whole point of the free market under capitalism is there, there will always be competition, right? And that's the point that's encouraged under capitalism because, you know, ideally competition is meant to force us to be innovative and to have like the perfect product because that competition forces you to perfect your product, which is like, I mean, a very idealistic way of looking at things. But the point is, even if we had ethical alternatives that were ethically made, inherently they would cost more money and inherently there would be people who can't afford to pay that extra money, which means they would still, even if we have some more ethical options, there will always be unethical options and there will always be poor people that are forced to buy those options. So like we can't consume our way out of unethical and exploitative labor. Why is the focus on consumption and products in the first place? That in itself is just showing us how limited our thinking is on capitalism. Yeah. And, and the reason they can't afford the ethical products is because of capitalism, because they're underpaid. So, like, there's always someone that has to be exploited. Yeah, someone has to be stepped on constantly. And sort of lastly, building upon the second point, specifically they say, I'll say it again, sufficient consumer demand for products and services that are respectful to people and the environment. Really... When most of these people are talking about things like ethics or being respectful to the environment or providing a fair service, like in reality, these words are empty. Yeah, they don't actually mean anything. You Like there's no real true meaning of being respectful to the environment. Yeah, what does that mean? What's a fair wage? What's an ethical, sustainable item? Yeah, because all of those things like will change depending on the person and the land that you're on at all times. Like even if we talk about paying somebody a fair wage, like that will change depending on what that person's expenses are for living, what part of the world they live in. Like there's, you know, we can't have like a universal like number for each person's different circumstances and the quality of life, you know? So like those things don't really make sense anyway. And we're not going to have a different pay for every single individual based on all of their needs. That's not how capitalism works and companies aren't going to do that. So it's just not possible. Yeah. So when we say no ethical consumption under capitalism, when they say that, well, actually, there are some opportunities for ethical consumption. Ethics is is an empty idea. There's no substance. It's just it's pure ideology. Uh, and the same thing goes for when these people use the term exploitation, which is something that I found, again, in this article and other ones. Uh, they're saying, oh, well, obviously, fast fashion is exploitative potentially there are opportunities for non-exploitative work. But again, when they're using the word exploitative, they're not using it in a technical sense. They're using it in, oh, this doesn't feel right. This feels unfair, so it's exploitative. Yeah, because really, like, all work is exploitative. Because when you're talking about it in a technical sense, which is exploitation, is when you are paid less than the value that you create, which is the basis of all work. So when we use the term exploitation, we're using it in a very specific manner, not just that something feels wrong. Yes. And I think even the term exploitation can be quite like no ethical consumption under capitalism overused and has mm. become a bit of a buzzword. Um, and people will just kind of use it for any situation that doesn't quite feel right to them. But we should remember that exploitation like has like a meaning. Like this is a real word. There's a real meaning and a real context, especially in conversations about capitalism. And it is specifically about undervaluing and underpaying a worker. That's what it's about. That's what exploitation means. And that's what we mean when we say exploitation, especially in this podcast. But something, and it's a little side note, but I think extremely relevant in maybe like contextualizing this idea of like no ethical work and never really being able to pay somebody the value of their labor. You know, a real big conversation at the moment is sex work. And a lot of people who oppose sex work, the argument tends to be you shouldn't have to sell your body. Like an argument against sex work, I think, is selling your body. And I find that so interesting because we're all selling our bodies under capitalism. Like all work is selling your body. Like you are paying for your body to do things, be it sex work. What about for me? My job is sitting at a desk for eight hours a day typing. I'm currently developing carpal tunnel in both my wrists that I have to like regularly get checked up and wear a splint for. I have really bad lower back pain. Like am I not selling my body as well? Like... Everybody who works is selling their body because your body is relevant to your labor. You have to do things physically for your job as everybody does, be it typing, speaking, moving things around physically as a laborer. It's all selling your body. And like, 
is there really a number of salary you can put on me potentially getting carpal tunnel for my job? Like, is that something that I can get paid the correct amount for, for it to be like, is there a value you can place on that, on that, on that particular labor? I don't know. And that's kind of the point with like exploitation. And like, there's no specific number that you can just be like, okay, this is the correct amount to pay you. And now it's not exploitative. That doesn't really exist. Yeah. So in conclusion, to be honest, I was like completely unaware that people were using no ethical consumption under capitalism as an excuse for just thoughtless consumption. You know, like I've always understood it along with the people around me as the idea that simple reform or change in consumption would never be enough, right? Not only is there always room to do more, but that a complete paradigm shift would be necessary to really improve the world for the vast majority of people. So not just a change in consumption habits, but a change in the nature of consumption entirely. Well, yeah, I think for me, no ethical consumption and capitalism has never been like an excuse to buy things. It's been a reminder that like we need radical thinking and that we are not going to just reform shit. It's a reminder that like buying a keep cup and using reusable metal straws and stuff, which I do, by the way, I've got my fucking cotton tote bag that I use instead of my plastic bags. And I'm pretty like on that sustainability trend with the stuff that I own and I upcycle all my jars and everything. But the no ethical consumption and capitalism just reminds me that those actions that I do are not going to stop exploitation. That it's just a reminder. For me, it's a reminder to always kind of have some radical thinking and to always be aware that to create mass change, it's going to have to come to abolishing like capitalism, really. It's always going to have to come with criticism to capitalism and that under capitalism, we're not going to save people. We're not going to save the planet even. Uh, Especially, I think this is a very relevant conversation with fast fashion and, and plastic straws and stuff, particularly about the environment and climate change. And it's just like, for me, a reminder that like the way I shop is not where my activism ends, essentially. You know, I want to make something really clear. This doesn't mean you're a bad person for like, owning an iPhone that was made through unethical labor or having a MacBook or living in an apartment that uses fossil fuels or, you know, you're not a bad person for shopping at Kmart of having like stuff from Cotton On or ASOS or whatever. Those things are things often you kind of need. Like for me with my iPhone and my fucking MacBook that I'm very aware were created under unethical circumstances are things I need to like work and live and study and like make a living. And the clothes that I own are things that I can afford. And I'm aware of that. I don't think it's a moral reflection. I don't think people's consumption habits are a moral reflection on them. But I do think that we have a responsibility to be aware of this. Okay. Because even when you can't create like material change in the way like capitalism is structured, you do have a moral responsibility to be aware of the exploitation and the suffering that has allowed you to be where you are and do what you do. Like I have a moral responsibility to be aware that exploitation and suffering has resulted in me being able to live on stolen land, to be able to use products that hurt somebody else in the making, to be able to have the career that I have and have the food that I have and live in the apartment that I have and to have the income that I have. All of that is hinged on the exploitation of other people. And it is my responsibility as a person who benefits off that as a relatively privileged person. Like it's my job. It's my responsibility to know that. And in places where I can lessen that to lessen that, even if it's not creating systemic or structural change, but we need to make that too, eventually. And when you do like make ethical or less harmful choices, like you just need to remember that like that's not where it ends. Like your your job isn't done. We all have a moral responsibility to uplift one another, including those invisible people that we can't see who have created things that we have. Yeah. No ethical consumption is a reminder that the world is complicated, not that the world can be reduced to, you know, what these TikTokers are proclaiming. Yeah, I think I'm going to end this with this really nice quote again from the Sunstroke magazine article that said, for privileged communities, no ethical consumption under capitalism is not an excuse to not try and make an impact. It's a privilege to challenge those in power and therefore those who can't shouldn't be shamed for it. But what I reckon is those who can should actively do it. Those who can should actively challenge these power structures. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode. You, our lovely, lovely listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Sarah, Liz, Bell, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. 
And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio. So check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you like today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Cool. Bye. Bye.